Hot dog! I'm Joel Volk and welcome to Small BizCast, where twice a month I explore the lives of small business owners to dig a bit deeper and explore strengths, weaknesses, ideas, and challenges with blemishes and all. Adam Triger is an attorney with a passion for small business. Although his practice focuses on employment and general business law, Adam Triger believes that small business is the main building block of society. As you listen to Small BizCast, you will find comfort in knowing that you are not alone. Hopefully, you'll find inspiration and ideas from the people I introduce you to, like Adam. Hopefully, you'll laugh a little too. Hot dog, it's a wonderful life. Just a quick, just a little background. What what led you to choose business law as your field of expertise? Okay, so um, when I went to law school, I wanted to be a litigator. And um, I had dreams of being a, a judge, even sitting on the federal bench uh, for a while when I was in law school, so much so that my friends made fun of me and uh, always put CJ at the end of my name when they were writing me things, you know, like chief justice, that kind of thing. While I was in law school, I realized that probably the life of a judge wasn't exactly what I wanted, especially because the, what you had to do to get there was be very political and probably and a really great way to get to the federal bench was to become a U.S. attorney, which is a you know high high profile type litigator, but you're basically being a criminal law lawyer. There are some U.S. attorneys who do civil law litigation, but not many. And as I moved through law school, I realized that just wasn't for me. Um, so when I started to interview for jobs, I I gravitated toward firms that uh, were hiring business litigators. So I thought that was an interesting way. To, I wanted to do civil litigation, not criminal. I really wasn't interested in environmental or personal injury. I thought that business sounded interesting, though at that time, I didn't have any particular business background. My major was political science. My second major was history. You know, And I really, my father was a doctor and mother was a lawyer. It's not like we had a lot of business in, in the background of my family or myself. Right. Uh, when I joined the big firm and I was put in the business litigation department, you know, I found that I did really like the subject matter a lot of business. Of course, when you're litigating, it means something has gone terribly, terribly wrong. And now you are, you know, fighting in a dispute between two businesses that since I was in a very large firm, there were sometimes they were multi, multi hundreds of millions of dollars at stake. And I found that uh, I really enjoyed the litigation, but also I enjoyed the, reading the contracts and figuring out how the deal happened and then how it fell apart. That really made me excited. My next firm, which was a small firm, a mid-sized firm, about 20, about 30 lawyers. And there I continued to litigate from a business point of view, but I also wanted to learn um, more about business law and employment law. And they had lawyers who did business transactional law who were very willing to teach me and work with me. They didn't have anyone doing employment law my other area of specialty, but they were happy to have me learn it myself and to start to refer matters to me for that rather than send it outside the firm. So that's what I did. So tell me, what, what surprises did you encounter? What, what did you not expect to learn about small business people or people in business that was like an aha moment early on in your career? I think what I did not expect and what has become a really overriding part of who I am, what I do, both as a lawyer, as a, as a professor, and just as a person living in society, is just how much our, the fabric of our entire lives here depend on entrepreneurship, small business uh, in this country. 
being a small business person and running a small business. And when I say small, you know, there's a lot of ways. I mean, I don't necessarily just mean mom and pop and an employee. It could be anywhere up to 200, 300 employees. I'm just not talking about mega businesses with right, thousands, right. thousands of employees. Yeah. When you were, when you were practicing law with, you know, you said that both sides were hundred million dollar businesses or bigger. It's not personal. It's, it's, it's the contract stipulates to something, something didn't happen. And somebody looks at that as an opportunity to get retribution. Is that correct? Yes. But even so, even in the big businesses, there's still personal animosities There's still politics. Somebody's head is on the, is on the, is on the spike because something went wrong. Maybe that person wants to get, you know, get his name cleared or I'm not at fault, or maybe, you know, the, the person who took over from them wants to clean it up. So there's still politics and there's still personal stuff, but it is way more personal for the small business. And I guess where I was going before and I, I didn't get there fast enough was I view, I view entrepreneurship as a type of morality. Entrepreneurs provide jobs, economic prosperity for individuals and for themselves and their families and for every other business that works with them, their suppliers and vendors and customers um, and, and advisors. And every small business is like a, a nucleus of an atom uh, with many, many electrons flying around it. Right. And the atom is the building block of our universe. And I think that the small business is the building block of our society. And I think that people that attack small business are immoral. And I think that people who uh, create and foster small business are champions. And I, um, I want to be a part of that team. And I, that's what I, that, that was what surprised me, that I, how, how strongly I felt about it. Right. I mean, you seem really passionate about it. And I've experienced you that way in my work with you throughout the years. That said, I, I know a lot of very well-meaning people I would call ethical I, I judge as ethical that make really poor mistakes, you know, egregious mistakes, and it costs them. And I I see that happening almost out of uh, exasperation because there's just too much to know to do well from a legal perspective. And so that's where you're an advocate often. Do you find yourself being brought in early enough to avoid problems, or do you find yourself as a react, re- reactionary solution? I think the older I get and the more experience I get in my practice, the more often I'm brought in earlier, which has been good for me. You know, I I think you may know I also do adjunct professoring for young people in in a college and talk about um, entrepreneurship and the law. But and I've been doing that about four years. But for long before that, I felt like almost a teacher to my clients and trying to help them learn about and understand the legal pitfalls that have been placed in front of them by the legislature and, and the governor and cities and the counties and, and, this, and the courts and so many pitfalls that are covered up nicely with leaves and sticks and easy to fall and stumble into them just by ignorance. Yeah. Um, most of my clients who get in trouble don't do it out of malice. Right. It's only out of ignorance. And sometimes right. it's about trying to do the right thing um, and and but but it's not the technically correct thing, even though morally it may be right. It's not legally correct. And now there are there are people out there who will attack and you know like sharks and gnaw at you and rip at you because you were you know unlucky enough to make that mistake. Now you're you're in California. Do you think the laws in California are too make it too easy to for a small business to get sued, or is it? I, I do think that yeah. I, I, I am in California. My my license is in California. I am an expert in California. 
uh, law, not any other state's law. I do understand, have an understanding of federal employment law, which doesn't really apply in California much because the, the idea is that the most restrictive law to the employer will apply. Right. So for example, under federal law, uh, you only have to pay overtime if someone works 40 hours a week or, or more than 40 hours a week. But under California law, you got to pay overtime if someone works more than eight hours a day or more than 40 hours in a week. Therefore, that's the law that applies, not the federal law. Same with so, minimum wage laws too, right? Same thing with minimum wage laws. Minimum wage laws in California are continuing to go up. On July 1st in the city of LA and other, other cities and counties, it's going up to over $16 an hour. Um, in California, it's $15 an hour. Right. Um, uh, well, for bigger businesses, and it'll be 15 for everyone on January 1st. Mm-hmm. Certainly under federal law, it's a lot less than that. I, I don't have my finger on the pulse of that, but it's seven, eight, nine dollars something like that. So it's a lot less. And um, yeah, it's the minimum wage law here that applies to workers here. So um, I think that California has an opportunity to make business easier and, and make business thrive and make the economy better and employment stronger and everything and the tax base higher, but California consistently falls down on those opportunities um, year in, year out. Every September and October, they pass new laws, usually dozens and dozens um, that are that are um, negative toward business with the understand with the hope that they will that they that they benefit employees. But in my view, by uh, making small business suffer, um, that is not beneficial to employees, especially when they suffer for such minor issues. Right. Right. Can you give any examples? I'm just curious. Uh, any stories? Sure. Any stories? Uh, stories are always helpful for people to get a grasp. Well, I mean, I, an exa- one example I think of, I can think of is uh, back when Governor uh, Schwarzenegger came in, came into power. Um, he wanted to make things easier for business and help employees. So one thing that he did was he said, "Look, we have this draconian lunch hour uh, law here. I'm going to make that easier on people. I'm going to say that the that the employee." Uh, and the employer can agree that if the employee wants to skip lunch and work through lunch, but and leave earlier, the employee can and the employer can agree to do that. Um, well, that was in place for you know the for the extent of his governorship, and then as soon as he was out, it was immediately repealed. Right. Um, I thought that during that time, it was nice. I mean, employees loved it. A lot of employees who wanted to go home a half hour, an hour early to take care of their children or some other things, didn't care and could work through lunch and eat, were much happier than being forced to take a, at least a 30-minute break off the clock, unpaid, you know, uh, um, because that's what the state believes they should do. Um, Anyway, that's an example of the state, you know, losing an opportunity, taking one once when the governor had power to do it, right? And then taking it away, and I doubt it'll ever come back. Right, right. And I, and I can tell you, as an employer, my my big challenge was keeping up with it. You know, I, I had too small of a company to have a full time, you know, HR person, and too big of a company to ignore HR changes. And so it became a daunting task just to stay abreast of the broad strokes, let alone the the, the fine print. The broad strokes were hard enough to, to maintain. And I, as a result, I I pretty much led my business with you know constant defense and paranoia, not wanting to put myself in the position to have to defend a lawsuit. I did everything I could to, to avoid it. I'm proud to say I was never sued by an employee and never sued by anybody, but it was not by um, it was not by uh, uh, it wasn't serendipity. I really worked hard at 
put, putting myself in the position. And I, I'm sure that cost me opportunity, by the way. Sure, it cost me opportunity with perhaps hiring the right people, better people, probably cost me some opportunity in doing certain types of business, uh, having certain types of customers that would have been lucrative to be with. But I thought I might put my cust- my employees in a position where they might feel like they had a lot of movie business. Well, a lot of movie business is, is uh, in the porn business, frankly. And we had a lot of those customers that we didn't take the business. Even though that was, there's nothing wrong with the dollars. It's just I didn't want to put my employees in the position of having to decide whether they were, you know, in any way compromised by being in that environment. The problem is that even the most well-meaning and most defensive entrepreneurs can still get sued because a lot of plaintiffs' lawyers out there will do will stop at nothing to create opportunities for that. And even the, those well-meaning and defensive entrepreneurs sometimes make changes in personnel. And when someone gets fired, there's a lot of, of pressure out there uh, to call a lawyer. And once they call the lawyer, the lawyer will find something. And, you know, so I'm really happy you never got sued. I'm sure a lot of it was because of your defensive nature and, and good work, but some of it was luck. Some yeah. of it was just good luck. And I also will say that there's an insurance policy out there called Employment Practices Liability Insurance that was created in the 1990s because it was getting to be just impossible for people to do business anymore under the threat of all these employee lawsuits. The problem is that those policies over time have been uh, reducing coverage and increasing premium and deductible, so much so that now a lot of people can't have just can't afford it. Right. Um, I have a client that I said, you need to get EPLI right now. I said this to him last week. He said, you know, we just priced it out, you know, and and to get the minimum amount of coverage and pay a hundred thousand dollar deductible, you know, yeah. five hundred thousand dollars in coverage and a hundred thousand dollars in deductible is costing us, you know, five figures in premium, and we just don't think that's worth it. Right. And and it doesn't cover the most important thing, which is wage and I think it's time and time disputes, correct? Over time. Right. So it, it well, so is those policies can cover the defense costs for wage and hour violation allegations, such as overtime, minimum wage, um, uh, meals and break periods, that kind of thing, but only defense costs. If you lose, they do not cover the liability. Right. And the liability includes not only the wages due, but also penalties, interest, and the attorney's fees of the other lawyer, which right. are not included in, in what they cover. And to make matters even worse, late in, I think, 2016, if I'm right, give or take, uh, California passed a law making those kinds of uh, violations personal liability right. of the officers, directors, and managing agents right. of the company. So you're your entity, your legal entity doesn't protect you either. And now you have personal liability, no insurance that is impossible to get other than for defense costs. And if they, if someone sues in a class action, they're talking about all your current employees and all your former employees going back four years. It could be huge liability. We're going to take a short break and be right back. Small BizCast is proud to support Fit for the Cause. Fit for the Cause is the leading organization in fitness for low-income and special needs communities. Founded in response to the national health crises, Fit for the Cause has used licensed and COVID-conscious trainers to keep their members active, even during the pandemic. Offering physical training, nutrition, and a variety of classes, members benefit from the same resources given to Special Olympic athletes. So stay active now by going to www.fitforthecause.org. That's fit, the numeral four, thecause.org. 
Welcome to our new sponsor, Jorgensen HR. Jorgensen HR believes that an employer's workforce is the single key to customer satisfaction, reputation growth, profitability, and the ultimate success of the company. Jorgensen HR works to ensure that employers are in compliance with federal, state, and local HR laws and helps assist them with almost everything else HR. Driven by passion and guided by expertise, Jorgensen HR. Please remember to mention Small BizCast when you call 661-600-2070 or visit them online at jorgensenhr.com. If you know of anyone who feels lonely on their way to the top, I can help. Hot Dog Business Growth is for companies of all sizes. For people new to business, we offer the Pay It Forward Roundtable, a monthly half-day panel discussion with your peers, coupled with one-to-one private counseling with me. This is super affordable and the best OJT you'll ever get as you learn to grow your business. For the more seasoned, Hot Dog Business Growth offers counseling for leadership and teams. We offer sales strategies and team synergy, as well as customer service assessments and training. Our decades of business experience is on tap for you and your team. Schedule your no-obligation conversation at hotdogbizgrowth.com. We are back with Adam Triger of the Westlake Village, California law firm, Stowell, Zylinga, Ruth, Vaughn, and Triger. Okay, Adam, now my audience, you're scaring them. I just want to point out, these are just, you know, people in business trying to learn to do business a little bit better. That's why they're paying attention to this podcast. And you've just made them all squirm. I know they're driving right now a little bit more uptight than they were before. Is there any good news for? I'm sorry. I don't mean to be uh, <laughs> and sometimes, but but I mean, the good news is that there are resources that, that an entrepreneur can take advantage of that will make them less likely to get sued, A. And if they do get sued, more likely to prevail in a, in a reasonable settlement or a victory. And what I'm, those are, um, I mean, let's pretend you're in the same situation as Joel here, uh, where you are big enough that you have to worry about HR, but not big enough to have a dedicated HR department. Well, there are plenty of really good HR consultants who are not lawyers, who charge a very reasonable hourly rate to come in and help get you on the right path, make sure your posters and files are correct, to help with interpersonal relationship problems before they develop into legal problems. You know, those people are far less expensive than full-time HR, you know, HR employees. Um, you know, there's no benefits associated with them. They're part-time, you use them as you go. And I really recommend that can be a good, a great way to avoid, you know, avoid problems before they begin. I Second, have a, you know, have a, a good employment law lawyer that you can call when things get beyond that HR consultants issues, when there are, you know, accusations that lead to legal issues, at least, and, and, and a good uh, employment lawyer can keep you on the right path and give you the right advice so that you don't make mistakes that you, you know, might do out of fear, emotion, ignorance, um, now that lawyer and that consultant can't keep you out of court for sure, but they can do a lot to temper the uh, or make the odds lower. And then, you know, if you can afford that insurance policy, you buy it. <laughs> even if even if the deductible is one hundred thousand dollars, you know, that could be a tenth of the liability and defense costs of being sued. Right. Um, and so although it's not a mandatory coverage like workers comp is, for example, it's still a great way to let you sleep better. Yeah, I considered it mandatory. I wouldn't. I wouldn't leave home without it back in those days. Now it did cover more, also for me. But I and I know from firsthand experience that if you have a labor 
like a wage an hour, the, the statutory penalties from the state are, they're, they're not negotiable and they're very high. And it's, and it's, and I think the good, what you were saying earlier, it was designed to keep, to equal, equal out the power of the purse. You know, the, someone who couldn't afford to sue would go to the labor board, the labor board would say there's a problem. And then it would keep, it would, it would give them an even playing field. Typically. I think that was the well-meaning nature behind the whole thing to give an employee a way to, to have a disinterested third party tell you whether they've been wronged by a presumably a deep pocketed employer problem is, as Adam's pointed out, there are sharks out there that are looking to abuse those, situ- those, those scenarios. And that's why you have to, as a small business person, you have to protect yourself. You have to be aware of the pitfalls and then protect yourself as much as possible. Yeah, it's true. I think that also the, the people who get in the most trouble are people who just put their head in the sand and just hope it, hope it goes away or hope they don't have to deal with it. You know, if, if you take the time to just pay attention, right. you know, you can do things correctly the first time and and not be in that problem. Here's an example, another example. Some people just believe that um, you have three days to pay somebody once they're let go. Some people believe you can just pay them on the next regular payroll, you know, but those things aren't true. Uh, If you let somebody go, you have to pay them on the day you let them go. If you don't, there are penalties and interest that 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 come on. Well, anybody in the professional world that I'm in will be able to, to tell the entrepreneur that, and they wouldn't make that mistake. Easy mistake to avoid, you know, very simple mistake to avoid. So that's an easy mistake to avoid, but in practicality, not everybody can kind of check on the spot. So what does an employer do in that situation? Well, I think they can, <laughs> you know, for one thing, you can postpone your decision until the next, or postpone the notice of the termination until the next day, if you do right. an extra day. For another thing, any payroll company can tell you on the phone what the withholdings are. All you got to do is write a check by hand, give mm-hmm. them a memo with the withholdings, you know, and, and you're done. Um, any accountant can do that. Any bookkeeper can do that. So it's not as hard as you might otherwise think. You know, people have to sometimes just buck the trend of their own procedures to make it happen. Right. But, you know, but, but I think it's not as hard as they might think. Yeah, you know what I used to do? I did it, I think, twice in my career is I had uh, someone that needed to be terminated for cause and I, they needed to go that moment. And so instead of terminating them, I, I, ter- I, I suspended their schedule per pending review is what I did. And I had, a, I had a memo written saying, your schedule is postponed and we'll be in touch. And then that gave me the breathing room I needed to create the, do the paperwork and write it all up and do the check. And I think that avoided, was that the wrong procedure? Is that okay to do it that way? <laughs> it was not wrong. Nothing illegal about it. Yeah. The only thing that it did was it gave the employee the opportunity to create some sort of mischief if they wanted to. You know, between right. the time they're suspended and terminated, they're still your employee, and so there are still things they can do, say, claim that uh, could make your life worse um, in that in that interim period. Mm-hmm. In your case, that didn't happen. You you suspended them. Nothing happened for a few days. You fired them. All good. Sometimes in that few day period, you know, there are workers' comp claims filed, there are harassment oh, claims man. filed, there are there are uh, there are computer files stolen, there is you know morale destroyed, etc. Yeah, yeah, good, all good points, Adam. That's why you were my lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> you said so, not me. Talk to me about you, a big part of your practice is helping mergers and acquisitions. Do the you get involved with someone? selling their business can a law can a lawsuit from like an employment related lawsuit 
stop a merger and acquisition from taking place? Sometimes. So I do two areas of practice, as I think you mentioned before, uh, business law and, and employment law. And so a single matter has both those areas of law. I call that the intersection. And that's where I uh, really can add a lot of value. Well, mergers and acquisitions are a very classic kind of uh, intersection matter where business corporate law and employment law are very um, intricately intertwined. And and why? Well, for one thing, if a business is being sold, the buyer usually wants the workforce, you know, it's usually all of them, sometimes most of them, uh, at least the executives uh, are, are desired. And so transferring over the employees is an important part of the M&A deal. Also, the buyer is interested in getting a clean company. If they're buying stock, they're actually buying the stock of the company itself, and they want the company to be all buttoned up and doing things properly. If the buyer is buying assets, um, you know, they still don't want a, a disgruntled employee to come over and claim successor liability to the buyer and, and have a, a, a bad thing going on because of what happened pre-closing. So um, a lot of what I do for the seller is help them clean up problems that, they, that I perceive before the transaction starts um, or even during the due diligence period as best as we can. Uh, to try to um, minimize any problems after closing. So that's that's one thing. And your question was specifically about lawsuits. So um, if in the last merger and acquisition transaction I handled, which only closed a month ago, about a week before closing, they got sued oh. by an employee. Uh, and, you know, as soon as it happened, we disclosed, the seller disclosed it to the buyer, said this just happened. Uh, and... It, that happened to be an asset deal. So the, the buyer wasn't buying stock. They were buying the assets of the, of the seller. And so what we did was we did a we did a, a side agreement that made the seller completely 100% um, responsible for that lawsuit. The seller had to leave more money in the escrow account than was when, that had previously been agreed just in case mm -hmm. the buyer got sucked in. The escrow was going to last about a year. So we would know by that time. And the buyer, you know, hemmed and hawed, but in the end decided, okay, with that protection, they'll go forward and they did close. But it wasn't a foregone conclusion. It turned out the lawsuit was a single plaintiff suit, not a class action. Had it been a class action, the buyer would have walked. Yeah. Um, it, the, also, it wasn't in the scheme of things that high of a damage case, especially compared to the purchase price. So, you know, the idea was that my client was very motivated to settle it for maybe more than they otherwise would have, but they wanted it gone. So very quickly, like within a few weeks after closing, we got it settled. Um, I would also think that the way you handled it by not putting your head in the sand, by being 100% upfront up about it, made put the buyer at ease that they were dealing with a, with a reputable group, I would assume. Well, thank you. I think that's true. Of course, if we didn't tell them, they maybe wouldn't have known. <laughs> but, <laughs> but if they didn't, but when they, but they would have found out, well, maybe sure. if they did, that's fraud. So, right. you know, you, you always have to be very careful. It's like some of your listeners, uh, maybe you too, Joel, may have sold homes in the past and not businesses, although I know, Joel, you have. You know, even other, even realtors will always say, disclose, disclose, disclose. Yeah. You know, if you don't think it's a problem, disclose anyway. Um, and that's kind of the same thing in a merger and acquisition transaction. Disclose everything. Disclosure will set you free and protect you. In the yeah, the first year. The first house I sold, we lived in kind of a rural area and there were peacocks like a quarter mile away that screeched like, a, you know, <laughs> and we put in the disclosures, <laughs> the uh, peacocks are in the neighborhood and they screech. We put in there. We didn't want anybody 
uh, saying not otherwise. So yep. Was, in, uh, in my, the first house that I sold, we had some leaking problems in the roof that we spent a ton of money fixing. And as far as we knew, they were fixed. But the realtor said, disclose it anyway. You know, disclose it. There were the leaks. Disclose where the leaks, leaks were. Just, even though you couldn't even see anymore because they were all fixed. And we did. And yeah. the buyer still bought. You know, we were scared to do it, but we did. And it was the right thing to do. So in a business, though, if you're not sued yet, but you think you might have a problem, should you disclose that? To the to a buyer? To a buyer? Well, I, I think it depends on why you think so. I mean, yeah. some some sellers are just paranoid and just think because someone looked at them funny, they're gonna get sued. I mean, that's not that's not enough. Right. Um, but if there is are facts that are known, um, statements that are made, especially in writing about threat of illegality, then yes, that needs to be disclosed. Right. Uh, there's a there's a gray area in there. You err on the side of disclosure. Um, but you know, if if a person comes to you and says, well, I'm having this problem with this other employee and, you know, they're asking me on a date and I said, no, and now they're looking at me funny and I'm worried about it. And that's all they say. Well, is that a sexual harassment complaint? I mean, no, it isn't. It isn't. Um, And should you believe you're going to get sued? No, not necessarily. I mean, it's a regular thing that you kind of deal with and say, well, leave her alone and tell me about it. And probably not a disclosure situation. But if she says, if that same person says, person asked me out on a date, I said, no. And then they have been harassing me and retaliating against me ever since. I'm getting worse projects and I'm not, I'm being excluded from meetings and I think it's a hostile work environment. Well, <laughs> you definitely have to disclose that. So let me ask you, sh- shifting gears just a little bit, Adam. You started out by saying that, you know, you, you kind of enjoyed this area of law, but you weren't entrepreneurial. But here you are this many years later. Are you more entrepreneurial now? Are you more likely to, uh, you know, jump into a business yourself? I know you're a little older. You're not old. And you're not even close to retirement, but you're, you're seasoned. You've been doing this quite a while. Would you yeah. go into business in the right opportunity now, knowing what you know? Well, I'll just, I'm 53. I don't know if that's old or not old. Um, almost coming to my 30th year uh, in practice. Not quite. May 29 years. So, uh, yeah, I'm pretty seasoned. You know, I think one of the reasons I admire entrepreneurs so much is because and respect them is because I, I don't think I could do what they do, to be very frank and honest. I um, I think what entrepreneurs do is, again, is heroic. It takes a kind of a mindset that is just, just laser focused and stalwart and open, but open-minded too, and able, able to tackle all kinds of different problems. And I don't know, I, I think I'm more of a specialist mind um, mm-hmm. that I, I know what I know really, really well and I do it better than anybody else, but um, branching out is pretty hard. Now I am uh, a partner in a small firm, a small law firm. Right now, only three partners. When we started, we had five, but one passed away and one retired recently. So now there's only three of us. And we've been running this business together since 1999. So in that regard, I am an entrepreneur. Absolutely. Um, you know, I was going to just contradict you just now because I think I've only known you as an entrepreneur. Yeah, right? well, that's right. That's I mean, right. This, is, I, this is your area. This is your, you know, your law is your product, but you're out there looking for clients, doing what it takes to promote your, your, your practice, your, you're promoting your, your reputation, you're building what you need to build in order to have, I assume something to sell at some point in time. That's got to have some, that's very entrepreneurial. Well, thank you, Joel. I'm not an entrepreneur. The clients are different than me attitude, but yes, 
I mean, I run a small business with two partners and we have employees and we have rent and we have, uh, and we have expenses and we have accountants and, you know, pay right. taxes and right. um, we have to find customers. We call them clients and we have to keep them <laughs> happy. And, you know, we have a revenue and a profit and we look at P and L's and all that. So right. uh, yes, in that regard, I am an entrepreneur. Um, you know, my partners and I divide up the business administration responsibilities so that um, unlike in your business, Joel, where it all stopped with you, with me, there are certain things I don't have to think about because my right. partners do it. You know, now I, I'm not sure that I would recommend that that way to any everyone, but uh, I've been lucky, same partners for since 1999. And even before then, I, I was working with them at a different firm since 1996. So we've been, you know, we have a trust that is just, you know, inviolate. So I don't have to worry about the things that aren't in my area. So for example, uh, one of my partners, not me, handles all the stuff with the landlord, all the stuff with insurance. Yeah, that's about it. Another one handles all of our pension and profit sharing and 401k stuff and a lot of the tax and accounting stuff. Right. That's not me. I handle all the employee stuff, uh, state bar um, stuff. When I say state bar, I mean like, you know, not bad things, just keeping up with the regulations <laughs> and all right. that, ethics and everything. And, and, and other things. So, you know, we have a good way to share it. And, um, but all three of us, we can bring in our own business, but all three of us have to market and all three of us have to, um, you know, keep track, uh, keep track of our bills. So yes, yeah. I'm an entrepreneur and uh, it's scary. And we have EPLI, uh, right. you know, and no matter how much it costs, we have it. And even though we've had long-term employees, we have it. Right. And, and from what I've seen, you've had a lot of flexibility to how you manage your practice over the years. You have remote employees, which you didn't have before. You actually had remote employees before the COVID lockdown. You had remote employees and you, you were pretty open-minded about it, if I recall. I remember I was actually a little cynical about it working out for you on your behalf. And you were, uh, you, you, from what I can tell, it's worked out pretty well. Yeah, thank you. I remember that. So yeah, before COVID was ever even a name on anybody's lips, uh, one of our our, our office administrator slash paralegal uh, moved to Idaho. We're in Southern California. And one of my partners moved to Irvine, um, which is not exactly out of state, but you know, it's an hour and a half away by car. And so we had basically my, my partner and our office administrator remote. I mean, you weren't there at the very beginning when I freaked out about it. <laughs> you know, like, how is that going to work? It's impossible. You know, kind of my mind blowing all around. Right. But, but you know, the thing is that I wasn't, I wasn't going to split up my partnership over my partner in Irvine, no chance. Right. Right. And the person who moved to Idaho was just too darn good. Right. She was just too darn good and we couldn't lose her. Right. So no matter how afraid I was and how, you know, I still, we said yes. And because she was that good in Idaho, she made it work by the force of her own, you know, goodness. Yeah. <laughs> made it all happen, you know. And then when COVID came, we're like, oh, no problem. Yeah, you were already, you were already at that point. Yeah, we got this. No problem. Yeah, right. So uh, were there any um, pivotal moments of your career that changed your trajectory that you can recall? Yes, I think so. A few. Uh, when I was a young lawyer, um, I viewed my, I was in a big, big, big law firm. And I thought I would be in that big, big, big law firm. Um you know, till I became a partner there and everything, because that's the way it was. I mean, I was, I, I became a lawyer in 1994, you know, in the 70s and even the 80s, that's what happened. Um, this whole great mobility of people from firm to firm didn't really start until the 90s, really. So, uh -huh. you know, I thought that that's where I would be. But uh, at, when I 
wanted to try to be somewhat entrepreneurial in quotes and bring in my own clients as a young lawyer. And I had some that wanted to work with me. I was told, no, that's not what you're here for. You need to work on our clients. And when I told them I wanted to learn uh, business law and employment law, I was told, no, you know, we have certain departments here. You have a role. You do your role. Well, go do the role. Mm -hmm. And that was too much, little small of a box for me to be put in. Right. Uh, so, and that changed the trajectory of me being a big firm lawyer for the rest of my life to trying to find a, a more a, you know, flexible, uh, smaller firm. The first place I found was a 30 lawyer firm, which compared to the 2,500 lawyer firm I came <laughs> from was very small. Right. Um, and they were flexible in a lot of ways that the 2,500 lawyer firm weren't flexible. And I was happy there and thought I'd be a partner there, you know, but the one day the partners that I have now, at least in the firm I have now, they, they brought me out to lunch and said they were splitting off and they wanted me to join them. And they were making the announcement the next day. Wow. <laughs> and so I had to decide overnight if I were going to change wow. the trajectory again and go to a small, very small five lawyer firm in the suburbs before I was in, first I was in downtown LA. Then I was in West Side Westwood, which is also right in the middle of the city. Sure. And I being going to this place called Westlake Village, which is suburb of a suburb of a suburb. <laughs> and uh, you know, anyway, I made the decision to do it, became a founding partner with those four guys. That changed my trajectory forever, too. Now, were you were you very were you afraid by that? I mean, you just shared a moment ago that you were panicked at the thought of somebody working remotely. This is this must have been a real traumatic decision to make. It was traumatic. Yeah. I, I was afraid. Um, right. So at the time, I was I was an associate. So for those who don't know, that means I was an employee. I was a lawyer employee of this 30-person law firm. Right. Uh, I was not a partner there. Uh, what I was being offered was a, was a partnership, a founding right. partnership in this new entity firm, this new firm. You know, that didn't come with any money. That came with a lot of debt. <laughs> I mean, right. I was, I, I was going to sign on to the line of credit, sign on to the personal guarantee on the lease, put up whatever assets I had at the time to, to back up this new venture. Right. And you know, the first time I'd ever get paid was unknown. So right. it wasn't like I got some, what they call the brass ring by getting, you know, partnership in a big firm that was already established. So yeah. leaving was, was very nerve wracking, probably the most entrepreneurial thing I ever did, but I was lucky because I had a wonderful wife, still have my wonderful wife, Melina. She was working at the time, also a lawyer. She was an employee lawyer, an in-house lawyer. She had a paycheck coming in. Right. Um, you know, we had, it was 1999. Our, we, we had our son in 2021. No, <laughs> that's wrong. 2001. So we were child. We had no children. She had a paycheck and we didn't sleep that night, but the decision was, if not now, when? It's now or never. As a business growth counselor, I'm helping some a lawyer who's an employee of a big firm help him roll his career into private practice. And one of the things I keep telling him to keep in mind is that if it doesn't work out, his downside is very small. He's still employable as a lawyer. He can still get what's equivalent to his old position back. The actual risk on that side is very small compared to most entrepreneurs going into business. What you described, though, is a little bit more because, as you said, you were on the financial hook, being with partners and leases and all that stuff. So that's, that adds an element of risk that a sole entrepreneur doesn't necessarily have if starting out working you know, in a very modest way. But that must have been some solace to you that the downside is not that down. Yes, it was. I mean, I 
the financial uh, putting my uh, my financial life behind the venture was daunting and scary but i believed in in the four partners i was joining i believed that we would have clients that, that follow us which we did you know your client you're talking about uh, a lot of people think that the clients aren't going to come or all of them won't come or which ones are going to stay which ones are going to leave most lawyers find that almost all their clients come with them because very few clients care about the law firm they're with. They care about the lawyer they use. Right. Um, and that wonderful part of lawyer mobility is also the very sad part of the business of law because there is no way really to take the lawyer out of the law firm for valuation purposes. Right. So when you mentioned, um, you know, I'm building something to sell, probably unlikely I can sell my business. Yeah. As I said that, I realized that probably not. I, I know of a law firm that doesn't, that that's a pretty good sized law firm that does not use the name of the lawyers as the name of the firm. And I always thought that was, that's their way of preparing for something to sell at, at some yeah, point in time. Indeed. It's, it's, uh, it's, it, 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 that wasn't prevalent when we started. Um, now yeah. it is. I think it's great for lawyers and the business of law. I still don't know if you can sell your practice that well, but you can sell the trademark, right. the name, and whatever goodwill that might be engendered by it. And mm. to the extent you have other lawyers and the lawyers are almost fungible, you know, to the, to the brand, mm -hmm. yes, it's saleable. But me with my law firm with five names in it and, you know, very old fashioned in that way, uh, I, I don't think there's really going to be anything left for me to sell. But, uh, but, but the good news about that is the, the, your clients will always follow you wherever right. you go. Right. Um, and so, you know, if it didn't work out in the small firm that I founded in 99 and it all went to, you know, hell in a handbasket, I, I could have just gone on my own or I could have joined another firm. They would have been happy to have the clients that I right. had at the time, even though at that time it wasn't as many as I have now, of course. And they would have been happy to have my skill set and put me to work. And it wouldn't have been that big of a problem. I agree. Another entrepreneurial friend of mine uh, who was in the manufacturing and distributing business was always marveling at how wonderful law firm business was because there was no inventory. Right. Like he, you know, he says inventory is the bane of my existence. You know, it's the hardest thing to, to manage and it's got to get the most risk involved in it and the most lending and all that, but you have no inventory. It's yeah, I disagree, wonderful though. for you. I totally disagree. <laughs> I'll totally disagree because your inventory is your time, hmm. right? And and once that moment is spent, it's it's gone. It has no more value. It's gone. It's past. Whereas versus somebody that's got a uh, a physical inventory can find different ways to litigate, to, to liquidate, or to manipulate it until it turns into income. So if you look at if you look at the from the business modeling perspective. I advise people to look at their time as inventory and then to best utilize it. So, so I know what he's saying, because I used to have a ton of money tied up and things that I couldn't sell. So I know what he's saying, but I don't want, if, if there's an entrepreneurial lawyer listening, I don't want him to think that there's no, the, the, this time is something that he can squander because that's, that's the most important uh, asset any of us have truly. Do you have any advice for the young lawyers out there? I have a ton of advice for young lawyers. <laughs> I could I could talk all day about you know what young lawyers ought to be doing. I mean, a few things that come to my mind. You know, you you should go to you should consider the first six years of your career as just more law school. Mm -hmm. um, law school does not teach you how to be a lawyer. Uh, it only teach you how to think like one. So you're starting day one with nothing. 
no experience and no knowledge. So you're not really a full-fledged lawyer for a number of years after that. So consider that all school and training. Um, and if that leads you to a place where, you know, you get more responsibility uh, and maybe less money, um, that might be something you should consider because the more responsibility you have, the better. For me, I was at a big law firm as a junior lawyer and a lot of my colleagues at my age only stayed in the library and did, did research and document review for for the, all the whole three years that were there. Wow. But um, I got maybe like Joel, not getting sued. I got a little lucky, maybe made a little luck and got a little lucky. And I made sure I was second sharing trials and I um, did my own depositions. I was on this huge case where there were so many depositions. The firm, even with 20 lawyers on the team, had to give depositions to everybody. I mean, there was just no, you know, so I was taking depositions. And when I moved to the next opportunity, that experience was what got me that next job. Got which it. Was a way, you know, way better job for me. But I never would have gotten it had I not had the experience. That's really interesting. Today, I was looking. I just happened to catch a, a want ad from a law firm, and it said they're looking for an associate with a minimum of five years experience. Now, now I was wondering how five years. Is, you know, why not three years? Why not four years? Why five? And I think you just answered that question. So that's that's helpful. Yeah. To me. Also, uh, you know, you you should try it. I mean, I think a lot of business consultants, probably Joel too, would say, if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. I mean, try to don't toil away in areas of law that you hate. Um, if you and, and the problem is that most young lawyers are thrown into an area at the beginning, just wherever they get their first job. I mean, it's just right. how it works out, but it doesn't have to stay that way. You know, I was, I was thrown into business litigation um, which I liked at first, uh, but you know, over time, I, I have jet, jettisoned that area of my practice um, for the parts that I really loved, which is business counseling and business transactions and employment law, especially the counseling side. And I did what I had to to um, get those areas uh, learned. I found people to teach me. I taught my. I, I found people with open mind to allow me to teach myself. You know, and I didn't just settle for what was handed to me, you know where I landed by happenstance. Right. Um, I think that's some good advice too. If you're lucky enough to land where you where you love, terrific. But uh, if not, make a change. Another thing is. Am I going, is this too much, Joel? Well, go ahead. Let's, let's have your oh, last thing. The last thing is about lifestyle choice. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, when I was at the big firm, I looked up and saw the senior associates and the partners and how they lived. Um, and, you know, they lived for work. Um, work was everything. And they were compensated accordingly. Um, so, uh, you know, they were quite wealthy and they worked all the time. Uh, and many of them, were divorced and didn't know their children well, and etc. I didn't want that for myself. I wanted to do the kind of law I wanted to do, have the client clients I wanted to have, be a rainmaker, and still have a family life. Right. Um, and so, how did I do that? Well, I kind of downsized, went from the big firm to the thirty lawyer firm, and then that night, uh, that sleepless night with my wife <laughs> in nineteen ninety nine, yeah. a lot of it was about right. controlling my own destiny and making sure that I was the only one who would control my time. Right. And even at the 30 person firm, it wasn't gonna be like that. It was gonna be way better than the $2,500 firm, but nothing like it's been at my own firm. And you know where I've been the only one in charge of that. And it's made me happy. I've been, I've been a happy lawyer and a happy husband and a happy father and a happy person because of those business choices I made. And I wanna just point out that those, those were three really important pieces of advice for young lawyers, but I believe they were important pieces of advice for anybody in business. 
anybody that can make those decisions for themselves. So Adam, no surprise, this 45 minutes went super, super fast. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. I had a great time and I, I appreciate the opportunity. Adam Triger, thank you. You've been such a great guest and I so appreciate that you shared your wisdom and personal story. I also wanna thank the listeners and the people that give me feedback on a regular basis. It really does help me make Small BizCast better than it was yesterday. Please keep doing that. And I wanna ask the listeners to support our sponsors, Jorgensen HR, Hot Dog Business Growth, and support our charity of choice, Fit for the Cause. You can like us on our Facebook and our LinkedIn pages, and you can leave reviews wherever you get your podcasts. Hot Dog, it's a wonderful life.